Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, April 6th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. How much does Vladimir Putin get paid? Unofficially, the answer is all, all of it, whatever he wants. He's got what's called a billion-dollar palace on the Black Sea. He has 6,000 nuclear weapons at his disposal. Can't put a price tag on that. It means, depending on the exchange rate, infinite. It's infinite. It's, in all practical terms, an infinite amount of money. There was an article in the New York Times trying to do what journalists do, tie specific amounts and specific items to Putin, a yacht here, a private jet there. It is pointless. It's like how Christians see signs of God in different icons. Putin's wealth, yeah, it's everywhere. It penetrates and surrounds us. It's omnipresent. Boris Nemtsov, a noted Putin critic, once embarked on a project to try to document his adversary's wealth. Aircraft, yachts, Here was one finding that he highlighted 11 wristwatches worth $700,000. For his accounting efforts in 2015, Mr. Nemtsov was shot in the back and killed. His last words were, okay, fine, it was six watches. But officially, officially, I found this fascinating. Vladimir Putin's salary is $140,000. A little less, about a month ago when the ruble took a hit. I wonder if he would have invaded if he realized that it cut his salary in half in dollar-denominated terms. So, officially, Zylan Cheatham earned 10 times as much money on paper as Vladimir Putin. Don't worry, you're not supposed to know who Zylan Cheatham is. That's kind of the point. Last season, he played one game for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he got paid $1.44 million in salary, 10 times Putin's deal. I'm fascinated with the official pay of extremely powerful people. In Putin's case, the official pay is a fiction. In the case of U.S. elected officials, senators, representatives, they're often independently wealthy. Some use their position to increase their wealth. You know, Joe Manchin and his power plant nothing illegal, just being a good businessman and a senator from a state that has power plants. But they don't get paid that much, and some of them really do have to live quite modestly on that salary. Take the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts inherited a million-dollar stock portfolio when his mother died last year. Several justices, they rake in big book deals, six-figure book deals. Many don't. Sonia Sotomayor took a book deal, but she mostly lives on her $265,600 a year salary. The Chief Justice gets $12,000 more. So this means, going back to sports, there are currently more than, I calculated, 290 Major League Baseball players that make more money than the entire United States Supreme Court. Mike Soroka makes more than the U.S. Supreme Court combined. Vince Velasquez, lifetime record 31 and 44. He makes more than the Supreme Court. Lifetime 194 hitter, Cleveland Guardian catcher, Austin Hedges makes more than all of SCOTUS. You know the old joke Babe Ruth made when they told him he made more money from the president? Well, I had a better year, the Babe Rift. I've examined the Supreme Court's rulings, their methods, and the Thomas family entanglements, and I could say quite definitively, Austin Hedges will have a better year this year than the Supreme Court. And when you take defense into account, Hedges leaves Putin far behind. On the show today, I'll spiel about a study that examines what happens when you pay Fox viewers to watch CNN. And one thing they actually wind up getting wrong, but I don't know if the study authors knew it. But first, imagine meeting 
and collaborating with Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones has won 28 Grammy Awards. He's produced the Michael Jackson albums Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad, arranged and conducted Sinatra and Count Basie's Might As Well Swing, produced the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, essentially turning Will Smith into a household name. And that's the position. Meeting the guy, collaborating with the guy, doing a podcast about the guy. That's the position that radio reporter and one-time guest host of The Gist, Sonari Glinton, found himself in. It was quite literally, for Glinton, a life-changing opportunity. The result is the story of Quincy Jones' podcast, the audio accompaniment to a VMP anthology, a series of box sets from Vinyl Me Please, VMP, and Sonari and his collaborators have come out with the podcast accompaniment. Sonari Glinton drops by to talk about learning from a guru with no peer. Is it possible to be one of the most acknowledged, important impresarios of American music and culture, and yet at the same time still somehow criminally underrated? I think if you think of Quincy Jones, the answer might be yes, because you probably know, oh, he was a great musician, and he produced all those songs, and he wrote all those songs, but his impact on everything we listen to now is I think underappreciated in the culture and trying to reverse that underappreciation, trying to address that, among other people, is Sonari Glinton. He's one of the producers or the co-producer and co-host of a new, it's a podcast, but you got to work a little bit to figure out how it works as a podcast. It really is a collection of liner notes turned into audio form. It is VMP, Vinyl Me Please, in conjunction with Quincy Jones Productions, can be found on Spotify and Apple. And it's like going through a bunch of really important uh, records and producing the vinyl notes. But Sonari does it along with his co-hosts, Justin Richmond and Alyssa Leon Smith, who is uh, with Quincy's production company. We're going to talk to Sonari about that. Sonari, thanks for joining me again on The Gist. It's always a pleasure. So tell me about this production. Tell me about how it came to be in the form I got to listen to it. Well, if we want to go back to the ancient story, I was working at NPR yeah, and with Justin Richmond, and Justin pitched the idea of, well, why don't we talk to Quincy Jones on like Morning Edition? Mm-hmm. And essentially the word was, what does Quincy Jones have left to say? Then Quincy dropped these crazy, there were these crazy interviews where he said a lot of things and it yeah. was just like who was in the room with him blah 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 and then also who was this journalist it really bugged me because it didn't it 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 didn't put an angry black man in context like that uh-huh. was what it uh-huh. does and and I did and I think that the context was really important and so me and Dustin were two you know black men in public media and we're like well they didn't listen to us there and we're like why don't we just pitch a podcast to Quincy Jones and we wrote him a note on a Friday and they answered on a Monday and we're like, this is crazy. And um, when we met Quincy, it literally f- sort of encouraged us both 
to quit our full-time jobs. Mm. We were gonna like, we're gonna go work with this guy. Like, <laughs> like this is this is like we need to make this podcast. This is what we're supposed to do. And literally, I left my job. Justin left and went to a broken record with Malcolm Gladwell. Right. And with with the idea that we were going, that part of it was in order to do anything with Quincy, we were gonna have to leave public radio. We pitched. You know, we we got a we went in, pitched these big podcast ideas, but none of the big companies could understand how two black men talking to Quincy Jones made sense. They said that's not a podcast. They were like, no, 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 no. Everyone thought it was a podcast, but then it's like it's Quincy Jones, and then they wanted to make it too much and all these things. And we were just like, this is a basic idea of like us talking to Quincy about his life and getting the knowledge that he gave to us. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the idea was that when two radio producers met Quincy Jones, he changed both of our lives. I mean, he took he he saw us as black men struggling in public media and he did something that I've seen him do dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, just like validate my experience, validate me. And I had, ne- you know, if you think about it, I'd never had that, never had a black boss, didn't have a black teacher until I was a senior in college. And huh. so dealing with someone who knows what they're talking about, understands story, mm-hmm. sorry, that was like, I had never had that. Not just someone who understands story, but, you know, one of the greatest communicators in his genre or any uh, in America in the 20th and 21st century. That's pretty amazing. It was a liberation story. And he's done that. He's done that with a number of artists. He's done that from Artie Lang to Michael Jackson. I mean, you can't like you you look at this and what it is, I realize is I when the shed Hudson Yards was this big project on the west side of Manhattan, spent gajillions of dollars. They had an artist space that Quincy curated. And it was 10 days of concerts, all black artists. And I was recording Quincy sitting, like literally sitting under him, recording him. Right. And what he's doing was I saw him do this thing, especially for black artists, which is validate them. Mm -hmm. You're fine. You're good. I mean, I heard him say things like, my, my favorite one was, girl, your, your dress looked great, but your performance was a little raggedy. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, like saying it with love and people hearing it and like, or just validating people and you go, oh, this is why Frank Sinatra wanted to hang out with him. Because when you, the guy who's been with all the other guys, right. who tells you that you're a part of that core, that's what all the artists I've ever seen need that you're part you you're connected to this thing. But at a certain point, you know, the answer becomes is he right? Well, he's Quincy Jones, but as you point out, he is right. It's not just that he produced Michael Jackson and uh, Miles Davis. It's that he continues to have these amazing insights and not these zen cones that maybe if you listen to it in the right way, you convince yourself of something. He gives well, you tell me, he gives spot-on advice that changes uh, the way artists are approaching their work, and it absolutely tangibly helps. Now, imagine me going to Quincy Jones' house. Yeah. So if you've seen the documentary, it is even more crazy, right? And we sit down, and he looks at me and Justin Richmond. He goes, why did you boy, Why are you boys want to leave public media? Mm-hmm. 
and we give him the LinkedIn reason, right? And he goes, come on. And then he's like, give me the re-, like, essentially give me the real reason. And we're like, well, because we're black men and they don't appreciate us and blah, blah, blah. And no, five words that changed my life, Mike. I mean, it, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. That's it. Like, you're okay. Yeah. The experience that you had, the difficulties that you had, like, that's, 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 that's how it works, man. Like, mm-hmm. that's what he said. And that validated me. And he looked at me and it's like, when you're frustrated, when you're jealous, when you're angry, you're failure in, he's like, cause you're thinking too fucking small. Like he literally said that to me. It's like, and literally Justin and I are walking out and we're like, I got to do something different, Yeah, right? I got a dream bigger. And I think that a lot, especially when as a black man, the world tells you the, the, the cavalcade of no's that I get in a day. And to have someone validate you, that's why Artie Lang, like, you know, like Artie Lang once said, you know, I wonder why people thank Quincy Jones in speeches. Mm-hmm. You're like, that's, you know, like, that's why it's, it's really having a, like the ability to mentor, the desire to, and then it's not like he's a chump. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, and then to see him do it all the time. And that almost is what I think. That thing is the creative genius. Working with him has made me understand that creativity in the creative arts, whether it's journalism or, you know, composition, aren't that far apart. It's about story. And 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 he every like, what story are you telling, my brother? Like he literally would say, What story are we gonna tell? First mm-hmm. question, you sit down and you're like, oh, this is connected. Like you see how this is connected to all the storytelling work that we do. And it, it, it is, it's a part of what makes black culture. The story of American sound, the, the story of American culture, not only could be told through Quincy Jones, could be well told and leave almost nothing out. The, the branches and tributaries from the Quincy Jones story and the, you know, origin, the, the body of water of origin, that's it. You know, I don't know why uh, Ken Burns hasn't done it yet. I don't know how well he does with living subjects, but that is the story of American culture slash music. Yeah, it is. It's, it is Fly Me to the Moon. Roots, Thriller, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. Oh, and Bebop. You're like, he, you know, like just even that one, one period where he decides to, you know, work with Peggy Lee and those people creates a little jazz renaissance that like of its own with female singers who, you know, like that, like you said, in the movies during Blaxploitation, putting Will Smith on television. (laughs) Like that is, but what is connected to is this, like, when you look at someone like that, um, like the Zelig figure of the U.S., when you're working with someone or see someone all the time, it's like, what are the, like, what is the thing that connects him to these people? Mm -hmm. And partially it is that he's clearly a musician. He did the, he put in his 10,000 hours. I remember actually interviewing him. When that book came out, we mm-hmm. in, in, NPR interviewed him the same week that Blink or the Malcolm Gladwell book that turned that popularized the, the idea of 10,000 hours to expertise, right? Yeah, we, you know, 
we don't know him really his work until he had been working for 12 years Mm -hmm. right the real i mean quincy jones comes on i mean really comes on hot with as a an executive and it's my party you know where he's still mad that they paid him forty thousand dollars still one by (laughs) (laughs) it's like 19 number one it was like something like 19 top 10 hits and like he still can remember the number of the contract and I'm like, come on, that seems like a lot of that was two hundred something thousand dollars, you know. In in today's, yeah, he's like, he like looks at me. This is this is the person. He like looks at me. He's like, yeah, if you had nineteen number one hits, I mean nineteen top twenty hits, and they only paid you two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you jump out of a window. That's what. You know, like, <laughs> and but but just the you know what it is? It's to see a real black. That's what it was. The fascinating thing is to see that a successful black man, it's just a regular old black man. Uh huh. That's what it is. And that's why I feel like we, because he's a musician and he's a musician who's behind the scenes yeah. often, you don't actually see what the what the real work that he's done and the real, it's finding people, but also putting artists in their right context. And that's a real thing. It seems right because it is a little ineffable. Maybe it seems like, well, what's right and what's wrong? And the track record shows you that it's right. And there are a number of ways to put the artist in the right context, but he just gets it consistently right. And maybe the proof of that is when you ask the artists, um, the ones that are still around or you have we have archival tape, you ask them what they thought of the collaboration. I mean, to a person, not just successful, but transformative for the greatest artists of um, the American the American experiment, yeah. You know, if I were going to do my personal place where I get Quincy Jones the most is and where I find him is Frank Sinatra. You take the two albums that they did and you tell me that Fly Me to the Moon doesn't and best is yet to come is like they're elite forward for Frank Sinatra. Right. Right. Quincy Jones got busy after their collaboration. So he wasn't available. And in my opinion, Sinatra went on to record with less lesser material, lesser artists, and he got bored and quit, right? I mean, like he was doing my way with Don Costa as opposed to, you know, imagine like feeling vibrant and f- like f- there is, you can hear funk in Sinatra live at the Sands. You can hear like an artist turning towards a new, towards a new hardcore swing, and then it kind of goes away, right? Because in my opinion, Quincy wasn't there. He should have been the next Nelson Riddle, right? And if he weren't going and doing films, Sinatra would have had another ten years of incredible artistic output. So let me ask you, and I'll ask you to answer for yourself and maybe how Quincy would think about this. I remember hearing Jenna Wortham, who's the co-host of uh, the Still Processing podcast, and she was talking one day, and her statement was about black people. They love our culture, but they hate us. So whether or not who the they is and hate, there is that tension. You know, obviously you can't say that America doesn't, to some extent, embrace as an entertainment what black culture has put forward. But you also can't uh, doubt or gainsay the fact that 
there is not the universal love for black people in America as there is for white people, let's say. So my question is, do what do you think of that? What would he think of that? And is it a mitigating force that, well, they do love our culture or is an extra infuriating force that as hard as black people have it in America, there's this elevation of our cultural product, but it doesn't always translate, say, to equal laws? Well, I always said that we gave the world Ella Fitzgerald. We could have called it a rap at that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like like yeah, yeah. we gave y'all, we gave the world jazz and hip hop and R&B, and, and like, that shouldn't that be enough with all, like, with all the, the other things, right? I think that there is a great tension for me, which is that collective amnesia, like the repeated amnesia, you know, it's like white people get the little thing that they, for like, every time, we, it's always a constant forgetting, right? And I think the cultural point is, when we understand our culture, and this is something that Quincy would say is that we need a cultural minister in the US. When we understand the culture and where it comes from, I feel like we understand each other. When, if somebody, a white man who really understands the blues, mm-hmm. for real, I mean like really is deep into the blues, you can't be, I, I don't believe you could be a racist and be like a genuine blues fan. Like that's me. I don't believe that when you really, are getting into hip hop and hearing and listening to the varieties of it that you can. And that's what, that's what, that's what's infuriating is also what's as an economics person, when we enter the economy, baseball ain't fun until Jackie Robinson gets to play. Uh huh. Right. Music is not, I mean, black, whether, no matter what it is, whether it's art, whether it's, public media whether it's it's no it's no fun and we till we get to play and then get this mike 44% of the world speaks english you're in the english speaking business like we are consumers we are the africa is going to be the next power center i think that the way the world is going and why the trump nonsense and all that is because people realize that Black and brown people <laughs> are gonna get theirs, right? And people can like turn their back to it and pretend like it's not gonna happen. Or we can let the economic growth that comes, like the last time we let black folks and women into the economy and during the late 40s, and that we got the economic growth. When we all participate, it's better for you and for me. Like I imagine a world that's so much better. And when you're like someone like Quincy, it's like, you know, one of the jokes he said is that the devil works overtime and takes no dose, right? <laughs> like you gotta, like, you gotta be working. And that that's, that's, I think, if, you know, to answer that question, it's like, it's less about getting acceptance from white folks. To me, it's understanding who we are, what our value is, and then what the audiences and the consumers and the people around the globe that we can sort of connect with. Sonari Glinton is a producer and co-host of The Story of Quincy Jones, which is a VMP, Vinyl Me Please production found wherever podcasts are found. He's on Planet Money, and his podcast that he hosts is called Now What's Next, and a new season is coming soon, where he travels Route 66. Sonari, always a pleasure. 
it is a pleasure to be with you. And now the spiel. Fox News is, contrary to certain reports, not fair and balanced. The zone they erect is not one of no spin. Let me erase the double negatives. Their zone is spin. And this is even better than spin. They often engage in just ignoring the news that doesn't advance their worldview. That is called agenda setting, and the spin part, that's all called partisan framing. And these effects were well known, were well pointed out, but were not really well quantified until now. There's a new paper that two researchers, David Brockman and Joshua Kala, put together, and they asked, what if we just paid Fox viewers to watch CNN? And then even better than asking, they paid Fox viewers to watch CNN. The paper is The Manifold Effects of Partisan Media on Viewers' Beliefs and Attitudes, a field experiment with Fox News viewers. It's a preprint that holds lots of great insights and data, and one even the researchers, I don't know if they are sure they picked up on it. I'll get to that in a second. Brockman and Kala, their wonders kind of political science research, when they were grad students, they blew the cover off a study that had results that were too good to be true about canvassers convincing citizens to adopt pro-LGBT attitudes. And rather than just say, hey, we exposed a fraud, you're welcome, political science community, they built upon what was useful about the original experiment and actually developed methods for changing attitudes from an anti-LGBTQ stance to more pro. It took a little more time, it took a little more care, but it was doable. And this new study, Kala and Brockman, Brockman and Kala, I think is how they call themselves, they found regular Fox viewers, people watched all the time, who, as you can imagine, they were partisans, they were conservative, and they paid them a little bit of money to watch CNN instead for a while and then answer some questions afterwards. The ones who watched CNN were referred to as the treatment group. As in a drug trial, we're talking about the people who are actually getting the doses of the medicine. CNN was the medicine. I don't know what a placebo would be for a news trial, maybe entertainment tonight. So after watching CNN for a while, the subjects, the treatment group, less likely to agree that Democrats were trying to steal the 2020 election with fraudulent mail-in ballots, more likely to know that Trump rallies weren't emphasizing COVID protection, more likely to have learned about the phenomenon known as long COVID. Compared to the subjects who kept watching Fox, these new CNN viewers were much more supportive of vote by mail. They thought less highly of Trump, a little less highly, but less highly. And there was also an acknowledgement that Fox News gave then-President Trump a pass. Quote, if Donald Trump did something bad, Fox News would discuss it. The new CNN viewers didn't agree with that as much as the old Fox viewers. And by the way, they would have been and were the old Fox viewers who were just being paid by the researchers to take in some CNN. What the survey didn't find, any change of opinion toward Biden, any change in vote, eh, no more happiness or optimism about the world, no greater lasting favorability towards CNN. Maybe there was something there a little bit in the short term. However, because of the time the experiment took place, the months it took place, there was one result, I think, that CNN viewers got the less accurate version of than Fox viewers. The week before the study started, police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot Jacob Blake seven times. This 
led to protests and eventually, as I think you know by now, the shooting deaths of protesters by Kyle Rittenhouse. The experimenters asked survey respondents to answer true-false to the following statement. Jacob Blake, who was recently shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was armed with a knife and engaged in a violent struggle with officers moments before officers shot him. On a scale of 0 to 100, with 0 being completely false and 100 being completely true, Fox viewers said that that was 80.4 amount true. CNN viewers rated it less truthful, 67.8. But it is true. It is true. Only at the time, there was a lot of misinformation pervading coverage. There was a lot that wasn't known, to be fair, to the people covering things at the time and a lot of competing narratives. But from what we know now, that statement's true. He had engaged in a violent struggle with officers, and he was armed with a knife the whole time. Now, back then, Jacob Blake's lawyer, Benjamin Crump, was loudly proclaiming that his client wasn't armed. Jacob Blake's family said he wasn't armed. Police sources said he was armed. The mayor of Kenosha said it was too early to definitively say. USA Today ran a fact check on the statement, which found that claims that Jacob Blake were brandishing a knife were false. They got, I think, a little too far into the definition of brandishing, but they noted, we don't know yet if the knife police later found in the SUV was there throughout the confrontation or held by Blake at some point, but Blake was not brandishing anything in the video taken by bystanders. Due to the lack of evidence establishing these claims, we rate this claim as false, but we know now the claim was true. The video showed it, witness testimony confirmed it, in Jacob Blake's interview, on ABC five months after the shooting, he said so himself. I'm rattled, you know. I realized I had dropped my knife, I had a little pocket knife. So I picked it up after I got off of him because they tased me and I fell on top of him. It was a small knife. He was instructed to drop it, but he didn't. All of that, the presence of the knife, it was widely misreported and it still is. A New York Times report more than a year after the shooting, around the time of the Rittenhouse trial, was titled, What We Know About the Shooting of Jacob Blake. This was filed well after Blake's admission, after a detailed presentation showing the knife in Blake's hand through video taken by bystanders. But still, the New York Times report won't say, quite simply, that he had a knife. It defaults to a he said, he said, quote, in a statement, the union representing Kenosha police officers suggested that Mr. Blake had forcefully resisted arrest, fought with officers, put one officer in a headlock, and ignored orders to drop a knife he held in his left hand. Ben Crump, a lawyer from Mr. Blake's family, denied that Mr. Blake had been carrying a knife. Yeah, but I don't know. That denial from months earlier is incorrect. The point is, to go back to this study, and what I found was interesting is that Actual truth, it's not going to magically appear in the head of the CNN viewer. CNN has to get the story right as well. CNN didn't get it right for a number of reasons, some of them legitimate, some of them, from I remember watching at the time, giving a lot of credence, almost a truth teller's amount of credence to the Crump statement and family statement that Blake was not armed. And it's absolutely the case that more often than not, CNN did accurately convey the more factual side of stories than Fox did. And if you switched a Fox viewer to a CNN viewer, they were much more likely to be exposed to different facts, more accurate facts, and just facts. 
But when the emphasis was on a narrative that turned out not to be true, unarmed man shot in Kenosha, then it's the narrative, that untrue narrative, that is more likely to be believed. I would like to see the researchers do this study with an MSNBC to CNN group or a CNN to BBC or I don't know, Dan Bongino to NPR. That would almost certainly be too taxing on the nervous system of those involved. Brockman and Calla also want to do all these types of studies. They don't have limitless funding, however. And I will say that if anyone wants to volunteer to give up Pod Save America, Ben Shapiro, The Daily or Today Explained, give that up for the gist. We can't pay you. But we can guarantee that you will feel more energized, less pessimistic, more enlightened, and you will retain a statistically significant increase in the love of flags, bears, puns, and a nice disagreement. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is running Peachfish Productions Experiment, where they take ASMR podcast listeners, convert them to Gist listeners, see how long they survive. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>